Good morning and welcome to Visionaries. I'm John LaBelle, your host. You'll find us every Monday at 10 a.m. New York time, could be any time in your part of the world, at prn.fm, the Progressive Radio Network. And you can find all of our back shows at visionaries.podbean.com. And today my special guest is M.J. Dorian, musician, composer, blogger. You can find his blog anywhere where blogs are. He focuses on creativity. The blog is Creativity Creativity Codex. Creative Codex. Creative Codex. Okay, great. And uh, um, MJ, welcome. And before we talk about today's subject, tell us some of the blogs you have. You've got some really fascinating people profiled there. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I run a podcast uh, all about basically the nature of creativity and, and the famous icons throughout time that uh, we know and love and, and you know, know through cursory kind of knowledge and stories. But with each episode, it's like a deep dive into each one of these characters from history, from Salvador Dali, Frida Kahlo, Leonardo da Vinci. Uh, we have Nikola Tesla. And then in recent ones, uh, even Carl Jung, which is traditionally not thought of as, as some kind of creative icon. But uh, when you look at his life and the types of things he did and how he changed psychology, he, he should very much be up there with the, the creative geniuses of the past. Great. So if you go to visionaries.podbean.com, you can find our uh MJ and I discussing Carl Jung's Red Book on a previous show, and uh, MJ has done another uh, another podcast on the Red Book, so maybe we'll talk about that one as well in the future. But today, what we want to focus on is uh, MJ did a podcast on Do Humans Need Art? So that's going to be our subject for today. And, oh, one more thing. Ah, uh, oh, telephone. Hang on. <laughs> Call from Stan Pupstein. Call from Spam. Uh, anyway, <laughs> so... Yeah, I think the I think our engineer can leave this in the show, because in today's world we're watching CNN reporters broadcasting from their <clears throat> little apartments with potted plants on brick shelves in the back. So um, this sure. this is our new world. Uh, anyway, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, also mjdorian.com. So yeah. you'll find. Uh, T-shirts, record albums, links to the uh, podcasts, et cetera, et cetera. So anyway, uh, do human beings need art? And mm. since I did my um, master's thesis on 
uh, pretty much on this subject and recently did a book on uh, called Visionary Creativity. I'm going to challenge MJ with a, a softball question to begin with. Uh, what is art? <laughs> That's there's no softball question and right. it's, uh, it's just as impossible of a question to answer as why humans need art. But to, to have any competent conversation about art, you kind of have to struggle and wrestle with, with defining it loosely, at least, right? So the question is, what is art? Is that what it was? Yeah. So in my estimation and in my experience as a, as a creative over, you know, the, the over 20 years that I've actively been pursuing it, art is essentially anything created, any work created through creative intent. The intent being, I'm going to make this and I've never seen this before, but I'm going to create it. Whatever comes of it, comes of it. But it's not a comment on the quality or value of the work. It's simply uh, uh, labeling it as the intent of that person, whether they're a professional or not even, doesn't matter. But just the fact that they approached something and said, I'm going to create this, I've never seen it before. And to me, that's the effective way to define art and speak about it effectively. Cool. Well, I start with thoughts like, um, <clears throat> well, on a, one of my definitions, one of my many definitions of architecture. Architecture is a manifestation of a culture in form. And, mm. uh, and of course, it needs a lot more specifics than that. But getting back to yours, um, would your definition include business, technology, and science? Yeah, it includes everything. I mean, if someone decides to, and they do design a new car, and that car is different than the one that came out last year, that, that qualifies as a work created through creative intent, whether it's a product that then people will buy, or whether it's something that, you know, a, a retiree does on a Sunday morning just for their own uh, interest. I think it's just as much qualifies under that definition. So I don't want to get caught up in semantics, but uh, I think there is some value to pursuing this a bit. Once you say that, um, if, if everything is art, is anything art? In other words, if you're going to include everything, that's, isn't that a kind of end of discussion? Well, no, because it's specifically creative intent. Things made through creative intent, not mimicry. If someone says... I'm going to create an exact copy, a duplicate of the Mona Lisa. That's not art. That's just a practice of craft and it involves some degree of skill, but it's mimicry. Unless you put a mustache on it. <laughs> well, then it's humor and humor is art as well. well right? But, but that, that's what Duchamp did. Right. Um, so, um, you know, it's interesting and again, I don't want to go too far afield, but when you say mimicry, I entered um, architecture school at the University of Pennsylvania in 1959, and Penn had abandoned the Beaux-Arts in 1951. So it had just converted to modernism. And uh, to present it very simply, 
Beaux-Arts architecture is all those buildings with columns. So if you live in New York, it's the Columbia University campus, the Metropolitan Museum, the 42nd Street Library, Grand Central Station, the Brooklyn Museum. Right. Those are all Beaux-Arts buildings. They're typically done in the 1890s, 1910s. And uh, they were very much rejected by modern architecture. And oh, really? Hmm. A real revolution against the modern architecture is making glass boxes, you know. Uh, mm. So um, one of the things you do, so uh, to understand architecture, you have to know that it's a religion. So in a religion, you have to absolutely conform to the orthodoxy. Otherwise, you're an apostate <laughs> and you get excommunicated. So... Yeah. Um, and you have to really vilify the previous point of view. <laughs> uh, mm. So one of the put downs of uh, Beaux-Arts architecture is that it wasn't original. It just copied Roman architecture. And mm. of course, uh, starting maybe about the mid 1970s, something happened. There was a huge exhibition of Beaux-Arts architecture at the Museum of Modern Art, mm. the temple of modernism. So, right. and uh, all of a sudden, you know, we're, maybe we should look at this in some kind of new context. And right. uh, so, we were, hey, it's not imitating. It's really doing, it was doing very creative, uh, incredible stuff, but in a particular vocabulary. Mm, right. well, that's a long discussion, but uh, let me uh, try. So you would include science, technology, businesses, if there's a creative intent. Um, let me go on to one more thought before we get to your, um, your uh, podcast on this, and that is... One of, the, one of the things that happened with modernism was a, um, a rejection of art as being something in a special exclusive realm and an attempt to find more of a unity between art and life. But now there's a tricky question. Was the intent to make art more like life or to make life more like art. So do you have any thoughts about that when you're looking at uh, art? Is it something that should be integrated with life or something that stands apart that we aspire to? Right. Well, uh, certainly there's the distinction between high art, low art, everything in between. And then there's also the very tricky gray area of at least maybe it happens more to artists, maybe not, but this, these moments throughout the week, throughout a year, where you look at something in the environment that maybe is produced by nature or just a certain slant of light on the scenery, and in that moment, it's art. In that moment, you can't deny the effect that it has on you and that it moves you in some way, the same way that a symphony or the same way that the greatest work of art in the museum might. 
And those kinds of moments uh, kind of boggle the mind for a bit because what's happening there, the person didn't create it, but it's affecting you the way art does. So there's a lot of gray areas, I think. So you, uh, uh, your podcast in general addresses creativity. You speak about creativity in this particular podcast. And in this one, you introduce the term high creative. Mm. So uh, what are your thoughts about, again, I think semantics really don't have that much to offer us, but let's just start with that. So what's your definition of creativity and high creative? Sure. Well, well just to tackle this idea of high creative, I think it's a very useful term. Uh, it's, it's one that I've only very... Um, in very small areas of, of psycho psychological research seen, even if you Google it, you don't get much out of it. But in the areas where it's been used, the implication is some kind of personality trait that someone would have that would give them a propensity to pursue creative work for satisfaction, basically. That, that's the end. And somehow these, these people who have this personality trait, um, this aspect to, to their mind and their way of being, they, the satisfaction that art and creative work provides them is enough to sustain them beyond regular, uh, the regular human luxuries and pursuits we usually have. And, and so it's, it's a distinction that's important. You know, traditionally, you could probably say the, the trope of the starving artist fit within that mold, but it was a derogatory term. Uh, but what that implied, I think, this idea of a starving artist is somebody who's, who's pursuing their creative inclinations and the freedom to create their own work. Uh, and they're putting that as more important than financial stability, right? So it's, it's been around and the, it's, it's, I think, an important personality trait that now we should start to acknowledge. It's, it's still existing because these people are often the people in history that we can say were creative icons and geniuses in their field and whatnot, but, but they have this. But how does this help us distinguish between the person who is really driven, gets huge satisfaction from going into the den every day and making rinky-dink jewelry and Mozart? Right. They're well, they could be uh, driven by creativity. Right. Well, certainly. Well, there's uh, there's the high achievers among us, and there's those that are completely content with being out of the spotlight. Right. Is those that could have a propensity for high creativity and, and living a life that's, that's filled by this kind of compulsion, but um, they might not have the ambition. They might not have the spirit to uh, uh, exceed their superiors or their, their, their colleagues. Or in the case of Mozart, they weren't like whipped into submission by their father from the age of four to play piano and compose um, and to be bigger and larger than life. You know, it's, it's, there's a lot of variables, a lot of variables. You, you use the term out of the spotlight. So I have a suggestion for a future one of your podcasts. And yeah. in this one, they were talking about, you quote Emily Dickinson. And yes. she was somebody who was totally unknown. Um, yes. Submitted maybe three poems that got published, butchered, and that was about it. Mm. Uh, and, and then... Uh, her poetry was discovered by a younger relative after she died, 
it uh, and it got published uh, chopped up because she had written it in very particular way on the page. And it wasn't until 1954 that her work was actually published as written and she got discovered decades after she died. So there's, I think, a great podcast for you. Yeah, no, she's on my list. She's on my very long list. (laughs) She's on my very long list of of folks that uh, that need to be talked about and and understood. Well, since you brought that up, who, who else is on the list? Oh, I mean, it's, it's a long list, I mean, and people keep sending me stuff and recommendations, so the list is getting longer. But um, up next, curiously, uh, in terms of just what I've recently been exploring, is the, uh, the great blues guitar player and songwriter Robert Johnson. And so I've been very much steeped in learning about uh, his official biography outside of the myth and legend of from him, his story is, is where the idea originated of a blues musician selling their soul at the crossroads to the uh-huh. devil, and thereby gaining you know, their uh, virtuosic guitar ability. And uh, as a musician myself, I've always loved that story, but also wanted to know more about the, the human being behind it. So Robert Johnson, is, and, then, and then, yeah, everybody from Emily Dickinson, uh, Leonor Finney, the, the fine art painter who was rarely talked about with like as the distinction of like a Salvador Dali, but she should be. Uh, and yeah, a lot of other people across the board who I'm blanking on, but the hits keep on coming. Great. Uh, so I've got plenty more questions and some thoughts about this idea of high creative. But before we do that, did you... Um, select any clips from this podcast that we might listen to for a few minutes? Yeah, I'd love to play something. Great. Sure. So perhaps we'll start with this one, uh, simply called A Thought Experiment. And you'll see why. If if there's an issue with the audio, just let me know and I'll figure out a way maybe to do it differently. So here, here we go. Imagine this scenario. A few months from now, the entire world has recovered from this coronavirus pandemic. Everything is back to the way it was. People have returned to their jobs, children have returned to their schools, and crowds are once again allowed to congregate in public spaces. But one thing is missing. What if the compulsion to create is missing? What if no human on any small corner of the globe feels the compulsion to create anything new ever again. No one feels the need to paint a portrait or take an aesthetically pleasing photo or write a poem or cook up a new meal or direct a film. None of that. It just disappears from humanity. Imagine no one wants to strum a guitar and no one wants to write a new song. The radios only play the old songs. TVs only play the old movies. And the bookstores only sell the old books. It's not just the adults either. The children stop drawing trees, animals, and rainbows, and there's no compulsion to play with toys because there's no compulsion to tell new stories. What would a world like that look like? It seems pretty bleak, devoid of color and life. The progress of technology would slow to a snail's pace as the compulsion to innovate would 
also likely disappear. In this scenario, it is crystal clear we would lose something. And that thing is culture. Culture itself. Some people argue that art serves. It just yeah, came to an end. Great. So uh, interesting. So again, we've got um, the is art synonymous with culture? Uh, is culture synonymous with art? Um, if not, how do they differ? Well, let's let's not do that. That's too semantic. Uh, let's go to. Um, let me go back to this thought about high creative. Um, when I was working on my book on creative, uh, it started with, I thought the creative studies, psychologists and sociology, literally had nothing to offer. I couldn't find anything that, you know, um, what are you going to learn about running a rat through mazes? And, and then you read uh, something by Van Gogh, wings, wings to fly over life, wings to fly over death. Um, I'm beginning to think we can find them. A psychologist can't work with that. <laughs> it doesn't, you know, there's no part of the brain you can associate that with. Uh, you know, your rats running through mazes aren't going to find that. So, uh, but finally, a few years ago, uh, somebody in psychology came out with the concept of small c creativity and big c creativity. Well, it didn't tell us much, but at least it could distinguish between Mozart and making jewelry in your basement. Um, but still didn't really say what it was. Uh, you know, and it was a really stupid circular definition that big c creativity is that which people recognize as important. Well, what, what does that say? So my definition is my, my book is called Visionary Creativity. And I say I have no idea what creativity is. But I do know what visionary creativity is. Visionary creativity is culture changes. It evolves. We are today living in a new and very different world than it was 20 years ago. Us ordinary people don't see it. There are some people who are actually living in that world. Um, you know, if we look at our students, we call them digital natives. <laughs> you know, I ask my students, has anybody in this class ever had a course in word processing? No, they're born knowing it. <laughs> right. They're raised uh, on it, yeah. Uh, you know, it, what we have to, you know, like, how do we use Instagram? They just know. Uh, so that's um, a visionary creative is someone who's living in the new world and notices that other people don't get it. Why don't they understand? It makes sense to me. So they are driven to create things that will bring this new world to everybody. And that's big C creativity. That's high, uh, a high creative. Someone, it's a work not just powerful or 
the culture says is important. How do you define that? It's something that illuminates a new and emerging world. And uh, so we see Mozart at the emergence of the Enlightenment. And he creates this music that is far simpler and more clear, at least on the surface, than Bach. Because it's not for a high religious exclusive class. It's right. for an emerging everyday world. And then that whole world is uh, rejected by Beethoven, who sees a who says, uh, Romanticism says of the Enlightenment, do you think your rational mind can comprehend the depth of the psyche or the mystery and power of nature? Forget it. Science is no chance. And so that Beethoven's music is plumbing the depth of nature and the human psyche in a way that the Enlightenment did not, um, because science really couldn't do that. And so then we recognize the importance of Beethoven, because he heralded the emergence of yet a new world uh, beyond the Enlightenment. So that's my definition of uh, high creative, one who yeah. is in touch with and emerged in an emerging world and create something that can bring it to all of us. Yeah, no, I, I really love that. And I think that's, that's accurate to what is happening out in the real world. And also very hard to, to computate that into something, but I think that's a beautiful way that, to express it. And that's certainly true. There's definitely these people that exist with, the, with these uh, characteristics. Um, the, way, the way I like to see it is, like, uh, I, de I described this in the Nikola Tesla episode, uh, briefly, uh, the idea that there is, there's these people that can be labeled like, like you're labeling them, who have their brain, let's say, if you look at the brain like a map. So everyone has their brain like a map, and there's these different territories that we all inhabit in our mind, and usually they're territories of proficiency, let's say. So we have proficiency in, in basic cooking, we have proficiency in, in, ride, in riding a bike, driving a car, proficiency in some skill areas, um, perhaps writing, doing archery, painting, some kind of craft. And then there's the people who start to explore certain proficiencies and areas more. And so then their brain starts to map out a little further than other people. And then part of the mapping out is because they've learned about that specific uh, proficiency through, through schooling, through reading, through uh, influences they have personally. And then there's people like Nikola Tesla or Beethoven who come along in their proficiency. And the, then that map for them has spread out and it's kind of like traveling to this town and these directions that no one's gone yet, right? And then eventually we will look back at them or, or other people look back at them during their time and they're like, how did they get there? What, what are they doing? that's so different than everybody else. And it's, it's kind of like the, the, these territories are being mapped out and they've ventured further in their territory of proficiency than anybody else has yet, basically. So in, in a sense, they're seeing the future because eventually that territory expands for everyone, right? But for them, they've, they've ventured out. Great, that's terrific. <clears throat> you know, um, one of the ways I see Tesla is as follows. 
electricity is really difficult. And uh, as an architect, I have to be able to understand how a building is wired, but only superficially. You know, I just have to sketch it out and then the electrical engineer takes it from there. And in simple terms, we can understand electricity. Think of a garden hose. So electrons go through a wire the way water goes through a garden hose. And it comes into a wire in the building. It goes through resistance in a filament in the light. Uh, that resistance is, pushes through being resisted, makes heat and it lights the light up. And then it comes out and it goes back. And how much is going through spins the meter around so we get our bill from the electric company. So that's it's good enough to sort of understand the basics of electricity. That's totally not how electricity works. And um, it's just good enough for a simple analogy for us architects who really can't right. handle. Uh, and really, that's how Edison saw electricity as, you know, going to a garden hose, going to a pipe, going to resistance, coming back. But really, there's not two wires, there's three. And uh, Nicholas Tesla figured out you can deliver wire electricity and it can, with one wire. Mm. It can return through the earth. Now, how does it go through the earth and know how to get back to the generator? The earth is pretty big. <laughs> and how can you skip the wires altogether? Right. There's a word for that. It's called radio. <laughs> he invented radio and probably got cheated out of the patent that it went to Marconi. Yep. yep. Uh, so... Uh, you can send information through the air. You can send electricity through. Well, that's because he understood what electricity was. It's waves. There's a Big Bang Theory in which Sheldon uh, is having a hard time with uh, understanding electricity moving across a uh, grid of carbon atoms. And he's, he's, he's the whole episode is he's trying to jog his unconscious to work with this. And finally, to do something really stupid, um, like, well, Einstein worked in the patent office, you know, because that would, it was so, the work was so dull that his mm -hmm. unconscious could be, you know, working away while he was, you know, file clerking the patents. And so Sheldon gets a job busing in Penny's restaurant. Uh, and he's carrying a bunch, of, and he drops them. And they smash. And he looks at the broken crocker and he says, that's it. The electrons are not moving as individuals. They're moving as waves across a pattern. Uh, so it's that kind of thing that Tesla saw. And all of his inventions come from that totally different understanding of electricity than Edison had. And Edison's going to a pipe and making resist. That's good enough for making a light bulb. It's good enough for making a phonograph or a microphone, but it doesn't really understand electricity the way Tesla did. Right. So that's right. that's a, a visionary creative sees this whole different world that we today now can just start to enter into as we're in this, you know, world of 
Wi-Fi in all our homes. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like, how's my laptop working? There's no wires here. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. But, but, but the weird thing about um, the story of Tesla is that, Nikola Tesla, now we have to specify, right, is that there's a bit of a cautionary tale element to it. And it's important to understand that aspect of his, his story because he died penniless. He was living in the New York hotel um, with no money to his name, with his bills still being occasionally paid uh, by Westinghouse, um, just as, as like a courtesy through the fact that he provided so much throughout his inventions. And so there's a cautionary tale element there. And I think it has to do with this idea that people like him, who are so driven by the creative act and passion for pursuing their particular field, they, they lose sight of the practical element of life because they receive so much from the act of creating these things. Um, and perhaps, you know, their dopamine reward centers and all this stuff is, is informing those decisions so much that they overlook the most basic element of life, which is just how to sustain yourself and have something for the future. Like he made all these horrible decisions throughout and, and uh, despite the encouragement and advice of his attorney, of his secretary, who like were on record as saying they told him to do this, they told him to do that. They told him to get a patent for his Tesla coil because people were selling it as a novelty item. He could have made millions off of that. And things like that. It's, it's, it's kind of mind-boggling, but I think it's part of the gift and the curse of, of such a person's mind. Right. Well, we still see that today. Uh, and uh, with, oh, for example... Now, if I knew we were going to talk about this in advance, I would have written the names down. Who's the guy who invented the mouse? Is that ringing the a bell? Mouse bell for computers? The computer mouse. Oh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Okay, it's um, okay. I'll think of his name in a minute, but begins with an H. Anyway, in around 1969, he did a presentation. It's called the greatest presentation of all time. He presented the mouse the graphical user interface, the local area network, and the laser printer. The whole thing. Well, Douglas Engelbart? Douglas Engelbart, thank you. Yeah. So he did it at Stanford Research Institute. All of that technology went to um, uh, Xerox, and then Apple picked it all up. So Xerox made no money. The, uh, Engelbert made no money. Apple became the most valuable company in the history of the world. So, you know, it, it's, it's the accidents of, uh, you know, Xerox made the star computer, which can to this day do things that even a Macintosh can't do. Um, it did all, you know, it was the, the Mac computer graphic, the whole thing. They didn't promote it right. It was too early. It, you know, and the Lisa and the Mac happened, the star didn't. So those are the coincidences and chances of uh, life and technology, like the inventors of the web, you know, and again, Andreessen played a role in et cetera. Um, uh, didn't make any money, Sergey and Larry did. So um, yeah, that happens. <laughs> the, who makes the money and who makes the most important inventions are sort of unrelated. Um, what's his name? Again, I should have had these names in front of me. But anyway, there's a, a professor at Stanford who uh, 
did key technology for the chip. Um, Intel ended up making all the money. It was his, a lot of it was his technology, um, which he never minded. Uh, he was a professor, you know. Uh, so, yeah, that does really happen. So do you have any more clips for us? Sure, sure. There's one that I think would be fun, and it's about, uh, it's about Carl Jung and his use of art therapy in his sessions, which oh, for the time was um, not traditional at all and, and kind of unconventional. So this is about Carl Jung's use of art therapy. In the 1920s, the Swiss psychologist Carl Jung began to integrate a new practice into his therapy sessions. He began to encourage his patients to paint and draw their dreams and fantasies. Today, this method is known as art therapy. But in the 1920s, no such practice existed. And under the predominant Freudian approach of therapy, it was unconventional. Jung said, the aim of this method of expression was to make unconscious contents accessible and so bring them closer to the patient's understanding, unquote. One specific encouragement Jung would give was for the patient to paint a mandala that contained the important aspects of their life. This process helped a patient to orient themselves more firmly in the aspects of their life that mattered, especially in times of anxiety and self-doubt. The result would be the patient would be more self-aware and more lucid about the motivations and causes of their mental or emotional blockages. Cool. So I'm thinking of um, something right now. Let me just make a note. Um, <laughs> there, uh, we architects uh, work, you know, with visual and form, and there's an interesting book called Jesus. Oh, could have written all this down in advance. I knew this is where we would be. Uh, Darcy Thompson, <laughs> and uh, it's uh, a book on form. So search Darcy Thompson and form. But in that book, yes, um, he looks at how form comes about in nature and underlying patterns where form comes from. So I'll just give you one example. Uh, where did our big brain come from? Standing upright, opposable thumb, this, that. Well, here's a thought. If you look at earlier hominids, there's a huge, powerful jaw. Uh, as diet changed, that jaw retreated and became, because ours has to do less work. But the, the face doesn't work that way. Think of it as this. So as the jaw retreats, the forehead comes out. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and he has diagrams showing two totally differently looking fish. But if you put a grid on them and you distort the grid, oh my God, that's the same fish. And it just distorted part of the grid. So suddenly these visual images reveal whole understandings that 
DNA, biochemicals, proteins wouldn't tell you. If you look at these two different fish and you look at their DNA, you look at their proteins, but this visual diagram that this one's this and this one's this, oh my God. So one of the great 20th century physicists is Richard Feynman. And one of the things he created were, it's called Feynman diagrams. And when particles crash into each other, interact and things spin off and the neutrino zips off and a positron comes out and then it disappears. Suppose you can diagram that. That's called a Feynman diagram. And he got vilified for that. Science isn't drawings. And then um, uh, when Watson and Crick were working on DNA, DNA was understood. It, it's a molecule. They knew the components of the molecule. They had the formula. But they felt that nothing would make sense unless we knew the actual structure of that molecule. And the structure is the double helix. Well, they were working away. They had this big model put together with scotch tape and tinker toys that they were trying to do this model. And famously, um, they got, what's her name? Uh, X-ray diffractions. Um, and she didn't share in the Nobel Prize. It's a scandal, but she had died. Um, so she didn't qualify that love up. So it's, it, did they steal her work? It's an ongoing discussion. And my apologies for not remembering her name. But anyway, they were vilified. Chemistry is not models. It's formulas. Right. Uh, right, right. And uh, once you saw that model, oh, my God. These A and T can link, C and, you know, these things can link. When they come apart, they attract a recreation of their partner. So that's how it splits and recreates. And uh, these um, base molecules uh, that make, make up the DNA, they can synthesize proteins. That's how the whole thing works, but it comes from the model. And just a few weeks ago, Stephen Wolfram who published a new kind of science using cellular automata to try to understand how things work. And the book didn't go as far as he had hoped. But then two weeks ago, well, he used to say, I think when I find the code, computer code, that generates our universe, it'll be about six lines. Mm -hmm. He found it. <laughs> so Stephen Wolfram on on um, <clears throat> on Google, you'll find his website where he's got he explains the whole thing. He just redid all physics. Oh, I have to look that up. That sounds fun. Now here's no. the problem: if you're hmm. a physicist and you spent your whole career doing string theory, are you going to say, "Well, all that was BS"? I now have to become a junior partner to this new approach. No. So you're going to keep it out of the university. You're not going to hire anybody who's teaching that new stuff. <laughs> right, 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 right. Which is how, which is how culture works. 
when the first string theory, string theory goes way back to the 60s, and his string theorists couldn't get jobs. Mm. Suddenly it clicked, and there's, there are no tenured physicists who are not string theorists. Really? Uh, uh, you cannot be, get tenure unless you're a string theorist. No kidding. And, uh, but now that string theory has crashed and burned. It does. It never produced any results. Right. Oh, so right, right. they can't say we screwed up. You just have to worry until they all retire, <laughs> and the, yeah. new, the new fad comes along. So, right, any, yeah. one more. I have a colleague named Haresh Lalvani, H A R E S H L A L V A N I, and if you search on him in the morphological universe, he uses. Um, 27-dimensional geometric form to read. He's redone math. He's redone geometry. So if you uh, know the periodic table in chemistry, there are a few places where it's fudged. It doesn't quite work right. He mm -hmm. discovered if you put it in five dimensions, the need to fudge it goes away. <laughs> so he finally just published a paper in a peer-reviewed uh, chemistry journal presenting this work. Uh, so these are all examples of thinking graphically or, or, geom or diagrammatically, which my, I was inspired to do this whole rant based on uh, Jung's using diagrams to, yes. or drawings to understand the psyche. Yeah, no, it helps you understand. No, um, what's fascinating is that this a point that I really, really wanted to make sure we covered, and I'll cover it briefly. Right. It ties in with what you're talking about, about all these aspects and these stories of, of these characters, you know, figuring out ways to understand the universe. Uh, so I think art and creativity is actually, I've been struggling with this definition of why is art, how does it come about? And so the one I've arrived at is this. That art and creativity, they arise as a natural byproduct of a complex intelligence attempting to understand the infinite nuance of its lived experiences. So complex intelligence being the human brain, as the brain grows more complex, it starts to realize that there's an infinite amount of things around it, and it can't grasp it all. And so creativity and art arise as, as a natural byproduct of that struggle to, to get at the nuance of everything, and it becomes an expression of the brain in that wrestling with that. Cool. So let's refine that a little bit. You're talking about finding underlying patterns in the mess of infinite reality, and then we come to understand those patterns are not really there in nature. They're imposed by right. our structures of consciousness. And that's why culture changes over history. <laughs> so rather than uh, our understanding getting closer and closer to reality, our understanding is really just a coming about of a new culture, which under imposes a new set of patterns. Right, well, that's why I say of its lived experiences, doesn't mean that those experiences are objective. So that the, the, it's a natural byproduct of uh, attempting to understand the nuance of its lived experiences. So yeah, like, like you said, it could be objective or subjective experience. Cool. So listen, 
let's wind up. This is John Lobel. You've been listening to Visionaries. You find us every Monday at 10 a.m. on prn.fm, the Progressive Radio Network. You find all of our back shows, including this one in a few days, on visionaries.podbean.com. Our guest has been M.J. Dorian, and you'll find him at mjdorian.com, which will link to his podcast. We've been talking about one about do human beings need art, but he covers all aspects of creativity, including mind-blowing creative figures that we all know, but we should know in more depth, which you'll find in his podcast, which also are rich with sound and music, since uh, MJ's a composer. MJ, anything else you want to say? Uh, Creative Codex is where it's at. Search it up on any uh, podcast app, Creative Codex. Great, thank you. See you next week. Thank you for having me. Bye-bye.